Chinese government is drifting more and more away from uh, liberal democracy. National and, climate um, pledges put the world on track for a global temperature rise of about 2.7 degrees American by the end of the century. corporations are not leaving China. Every generation has something to fight when for. When we look at Europe today, we, we hardly have time to take a breath and, and look into <laughs> the future. Coming to you from the banks of the Danube, you are listening to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vevoda. Welcome to our digital salon at Vienna's Institute for Human Sciences, the IWM. In each episode of Coffee House Conversations, I'll be joined by Europe's futures fellows and leading thinkers from around the world. We'll be probing their current research topics through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that will shape the future of democracy in Europe and around the world. In this podcast, I'm truly honored to be talking to Europe's Futures Fellow and academic at Kadir Khas University in Istanbul, Soliozel, about the new future awaiting US and EU transatlantic relations. Hello, my name is Soli Özel. I am a lecturer in Istanbul's Kadir Has University. The project that I'll be working on is actually being shaped as I start working on it, in that the recent developments have shown to us that the transatlantic relations, as they were defined during the Cold War, are not going to continue along the same path. It is quite obvious, and I think it has been made rather rudely obvious by the new American administration as well, which everybody expected to be somewhat different than the previous Trump administration, that the United States has very little time and energy to deal with the Europeans, and all its energy is going to be concentrated and its resources will be concentrated on what we now call the Indo-Pacific region, to Asia, and the goal would be the containment of China's rise. Therefore, all the other little problems, and even as big a problem as the European security theater, are going to play a much less important role in the United States' configuration of their strategy and the policies that they will choose. This will obviously have serious repercussions for Europe. On the one hand, the Europeans can no longer feel <clears throat> comfortable thinking that the American security umbrella is going to be there unconditionally at all times or at the level that they have been accustomed to. The question of strategic autonomy laid out by the French president is not something that the Europeans can any longer put aside because it has now become very important. It appears from what has happened so far that the uh, relations, the transatlantic relations, and how good they are, how tight they are, are going to be predicated on the positions that the Europeans choose to take on relations with China, and certainly in terms of whether they will allow the Chinese technology companies to actually dominate their markets. And those are really things of great order, important decisions on which uh, a lot of thinking and a lot of negotiations will have to go on. 
in the last month, we have seen that the United States didn't even bother to let its allies know that it was leaving Afghanistan precipitously. And a lot of the uh, allies have seen, or at least Germans and the French have seen this as a betrayal of the tight relations that need to exist in the alliance. The German foreign minister called it the greatest crisis in, in, in the alliance. And before the fumes of that have actually dissipated, the Americans have done, have pulled a trick on the French. And unfortunately, the French did not find too many allies that were vocal in their support within the European Union, which speaks to another problem within the Union. And the Anglos, so to say, Australia, Great Britain, and the United States have come up with this AUKUS, this very awkward acronym, whereby the Americans will be selling nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. And that, of course, is a major step demonstrating that is America's priorities strategically have already moved eastwards. On the one hand, my work will try to see what options there are that are, that are available and which way the European Union is likely to go, particularly after the two or three important elections of the German, French and Italian political systems. And I would also argue, and that may have to prove to be contentious, that especially on security matters, Turkey is going to have to be a partner to Europe. And now, given the fact that there is between Turkey and most of the European Union member states, not much love lost these days, and that there is a great degree of mistrust between the parties, it will be difficult to reestablish a level of dialogue that, that I think the new circumstances necessitate. If for nothing else, the refugee issue, which is not a transitory issue, cannot be treated as a transactional relation between Turkey and, and, and Europe. Therefore, a lot is on the table for restructuring, perhaps for dismantling and then reconstruction. Sully, welcome, and it's great to have you with us. It's great to be here with you, Ivan. So let's start with the United States. And this famous pivot to Asia that, that happened already under Obama. Today, there's more talk about Indo-Pacific instead of Asia, but it's all frankly the same thing. Has, during this pivot to Asia and with its ongoing pivot, Europe lost out in this? And how has it been framed? And are there differences between the different American administrations? There is, of course, a lot of differences between different administrations, certainly between Obama and Trump and Trump and Biden, when it comes to the style of conducting business rather than in terms of the principles by which the state policy of the United States is, uh, is guided, in my view. And of course, Trump in a way was sui generis, but it is also, it has to be said that he is the one who finally got the American establishment to focus almost exclusively on Asia, something that Obama wanted to do, but wanted to do in a different way without really giving up on Europe, that Biden also wishes to do without giving up on, on Europe. But obviously, the resources are limited. The die is cast in the sense that the American foreign policy and security establishment is now zeroing, zeroing in on China. And therefore, the, the, uh, the direction is, is set. It has begun under Obama, 
had a radical jump under Trump, and Biden, by and large, continues the policies in that he did not really lift the sanctions or the taxes on Chinese goods. Obviously, some of uh, Trump's policies are indeed continuing. Does that mean it will all happen to, at the expense of Europe? I am not quite sure. But I also think that all those nice words about transatlantic partnership, that, you know, we have a lot of stakes in, in all of this together, that will not go too far. And there will have to be a new accord between the two shores of the Atlantic. And maybe with the new German government, it may truly begin because France by itself obviously proved not up to the task entirely. Central to this proposition is the idea that the major threats to the United States security system are no longer European in origin. Do you agree with this claim and feel that it is credible, especially in light of the fact of Russia's activities, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, what happened in Ukraine with the annexation of Crimea, and of course with NATO allies such as the Baltic countries and Poland really feeling that there is a threat from Russia that is significant? I think the thinking is, and I'm not, I don't think this is wrong that Europe is not going to be the theater of a major war again. On the other hand, at the periphery of Europe, of course, there will be this um, tug of war, if you will, between Russian sphere of influence and what the Europeans wish to accomplish. Now, I really doubt that the United States is as distanced from security concerns in uh, Europe as we see at the outset. Look at what's happening in the Black Base near the Black Sea in Greece which, of course, makes Turks wonder if their geopolitical position has been weakened. Definitely closer security military relations with Romania and Bulgaria, both of them, of course, on the Black Sea, and NATO wishing to be very active in the Black Sea, and even, even Turkey, which has a very interesting relation with Russia, having bought the S-400 systems and whatever, sign on to everything that is about the Black Sea against Russia that NATO actually comes up with. Therefore, certainly in um, North-Southeast Europe, I suppose, or near the Black Sea, the United States is definitely interested in containing uh, Russia. Now, I'll go back again to this theme of continuity. If you recall, Obama in that very famous article in um, the Atlantic on March 2016, entitled The Obama Doctrine, said that he thought Russia was no longer a major league player, whether he was right or wrong is debatable, but, but basically he said it's a regional power, and added that Ukraine was actually in Russia's region. Therefore, there really wasn't all that much that the United States could do, and I don't think any sane person expects anybody to fight over the Crimea, or even if the uh, Donbass is annexed by Russia. So, but beyond that, I suppose the American policies, we cannot let the Russians expand further. So uh, the real interest, therefore, is in Eastern Europe and in the Black Sea region. And there the United States has already done quite a lot by sending troops and what have you. And I suspect that the Russians are not going to tempt NATO on those frontiers, but they will definitely be much more assertive in what Obama called their backyard. 
I, in fact, completely agree with you because it is a standoff uh, in spite of the buildup of, of military forces that is significant on the Russian side of the Ukrainian border. We saw that actually in the early phase of the Ukrainian conflict after the taking of Crimea over the city Mariupol. There was talk that the Russians would maybe take it, but then the West sent a very strong message and said that was really, in fact, a, a red line and Germany in particular, but other Europeans, not only the US, and, and that's where the lines were drawn. I think we're, we're seeing a kind of testing of the waters here, very dangerous, of course. But let me come back to this issue of the pivot to Asia. Uh, is there really a role for Europe as a partner of the United States? This is really not a simple question, and I'll try to answer it in, in compartments, if you will. One, that the Europeans wish to be relevant, in particular France, which obviously does have territory and therefore population in Indo-Pacific, is a given. Because the Europeans do fear, again, what was implicit in your initial question was, is Europe going to be irrelevant? And that irrelevance means quite a lot, both in security terms and in the long run in economic terms for the Europeans. Therefore, they don't want to be irrelevant. On the other hand, many countries in Asia and many countries in Europe do not wish to make a decision favoring China or the United States. And increasingly, the United States is pushing them. But here I want to open a parenthesis. I suggested, and that's my reading, that the American security and foreign policy establishment is not dead set against China. But American corporations are not leaving China. In fact, capital is still moving into China. Just recently, the Chinese opened up their financial system to American companies. And of course, all the big ones, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs have all, have all rushed in. So in a way, the big American capital is almost as ambivalent or as unwilling to fully commit to an anti-China position as the Europeans and most of the Asian countries. The reason why Australia ultimately made such a decision after a long time period of reluctance to do so or ambivalence about it is because China had been very aggressive against, against uh, Australia. So maybe the answer to your question some, is also dependent on how aggressive Xi Jinping is going to be in the future because that may then push countries that want to remain on the sidelines or in the middle to actually make the choice that the Americans also want them want them to make. So finally, if Europe is going to be relevant and if Europe is going to be contributing to what the US wants to do, it's going to be along economic terms. And that means a rehashing of economic relations between the two sides of the transatlantic, and maybe they will act as a block against the China-centered block. And the United States, that has advantages because it does have uh, strong economic relations and security relations with important countries in, in Asia, such as Japan, Korea. This entire question of supply chains, uh, reindustrialization, which, by the way, is becoming a very important domestic issue in almost every advanced economy in Europe. And we've, we now see this in, in the French presidential elections as well. Along those lines, they will have to see now there is a subterranean tendency everywhere to be even more protectionist via 
extra tariff uh, measures and stuff. And maybe it will, it will come to Indonesia and India as well. Thank you for uh, portraying the complexity of this equation, US, China, Europe, and for stressing the importance of existing economic relations and financial and investment relations, not only between US and China and uh, Europe and China, but also the need to always uh, remind ourselves of the strength of the transatlantic economic mutual investment relationship. You know, we often talk about security and foreign policy, but in fact, what, what underpins that relationship is, is the, the enormity of, of the investment. And thus, when we talk about the possible G2 world between US and China, we're forgetting, in fact, this underpinning. Coming up in part two, Ivan and Solly discussed the fallout from America's chaotic retreat from Afghanistan and its implications for the pivot to Asia. Let's uh, switch tack for a moment and uh, talk about what happened in Afghanistan and this question that everybody has been asking, what does this mean for US's global influence? Again, the <laughs> point about continuity. Obama desperately wanted to get out of Afghanistan, and he was not allowed to do so by its by his military and security establishment, which, if I may be allowed, what we are learning now about the way that war was conducted, there was so much corruption, and there were so many vested interests in continuing a war that became actually senseless, that one has to recalibrate or rethink what on earth the American security establishment was actually about. I mean, private militaries that are being supported by generous American funding, which then corrupts the entire Afghan system, which was not anything to write home about to begin with and stuff. In a way, the execution of that war was actually what corroded the effort in Afghanistan. And unless the Americans actually come clean on that one, I really don't think they can be trusted to do anything else anywhere either. Moreover, you cannot trust them to do anything right in its execution, no matter what the goals are that may be uh, pertinent or that may be dear to many other countries in the Western, in the Western alliance are. So having said that, obviously they don't want to remain in, they, they don't want to remain invested in Afghanistan and definitely not in the major parts of the Middle East to the extent that they were. I doubt that they will want to leave the Gulf region because it's not about the... Uh, yes, America's dependence on oil is a lot less than it was before. It is now a self-sufficient country in energy. But the point about the Gulf is not really to have access to that oil, but to control the roads to access that oil. In that sense, I doubt that the Americans will fully leave, especially if a deal with Iran is not forthcoming, although there is now more effort on the part of the regional powers to actually make their deal with Iran. On Afghanistan, look, when you look back now, they dropped, they really left a, a ticking bomb on the lap of, of the Taliban, didn't they? All the assets of Afghanistan are frozen. The Taliban are certainly incapable of actually running the country. And now they have challenges from ISIS Horasan, maybe very soon <laughs> Afghanistan is really going to become a problem for China and, uh, and for Russia, especially if the Taliban are unable to actually keep the place 
in order. But the way the Afghanistan pullout had been done is, by the way, hurting the Biden administration. And secondly, it also showed the nonchalance that was repeated in the AUKUS thing only against, against the French, perhaps, that the Americans do not particularly care about Europe's views on anything that they do, which they deem so important, so important to themselves. More specifically, and coming closer to home for both of us, the Balkans and Turkey, uh, you know, there was hope from the Biden administration that there may be that they may be able to lean on Turkish support as the withdrawal from Afghanistan happened. Clearly, this did not actually pan out in that same way because obviously those who were closer and inside, like Pakistan or the Taliban, took took a bigger role. Uh, lots of things to unpack there. Turkey is a regional power by virtue of the fact of that it is located where it is located. It also has an ambitious government which wishes to make Turkey a relevant regional power. And it has a much more, let's say, proactive, to be polite, or more abrasive policy in the neighborhood. It has had that in the last, definitely in the last seven years, but I would say maybe since the beginning of the Arab revolts. In all of this, when you look at the record from a distance, nothing came to a conclusion, okay? I mean, Turkey has actually scored a big military victory against, those, against forces that, su that supported Haftar in Libya, but it is not the main player now in Libya for the, res for the political settlement. Mm -hmm. It has played an enormous role in, uh, in the Azerbaijan war against Armenia to, for over uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. And I suppose behind the scenes, Israel was there as well. So Turkey and Israel were actually allies in that particular war. And when I'm, and I don't follow it very closely, but I think Turkey is not the main force that actually directs where we will go. Although I'm very happy to say that there are direct and indirect contacts between Turkey and Armenia. And maybe now that the reason why Turkey does not open its borders to Armenia has been lifted because Nagorno-Karabakh has been freed, or at least has been taken back by, by, by our, uh, Azerbaijan. The, the, the prospect of opening the borders may be there, but mm -hmm. the Russians who were actually implicitly permissive to, to that war, I think they are reasserting themselves and they may be the ones that call the shots because Turkey has not obtained some of the things that it wanted from the rest. On Syria, Syria had had a very corrosive effect on Turkey, in my view. First of all, it, um, it reduced Turkish foreign policy's main debt to fighting the Kurds, and therefore it narrowed the, the definition of its strategic interest. Little by little, Turkey is, of course, moving away from the goal of removing uh, Bashar al-Assad. It's all. It's all about. It's all about the Kurds. But it also managed to make deals with Russia, which could have kept Turkey from entering Syria. And Turkey already had four military operations inside Syria, and it occupies actually a big chunk of territory in the north and northeast of northeast of Syria. Whether or not it will be a, an important player in brokering an agreement to finalize. This, that brutal war. And unfortunately, the entire world will have to accept that brutality paid off and Bashar al-Assad will remain in place. The Algerians have just called uh, on others to let uh, Bashar al-Assad up to Syria 
to, to come back to the fold to the Arab League. He was already visited by the foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates. The uh, King of Jordan has had a number of phone calls with Bashar al-Assad, and the, and the Russians obviously managed to protect him in place, as are the Iranians. Russians and the Americans are negotiating behind the scenes to find a solution, and I think the, the way Bashar al-Assad may remain in power and get the backing of the international community will be predicated on whether or not Iranian influence in Syria and thereby in Lebanon could be reduced. And Turkey, by virtue of its geography, obviously will be a relevant factor in there. But how it will manage, I, how it will manage the final resolution, whether or not it will be possible for over three and a half million Syrian refugees, or at least a chunk of them, to go back to Syria, all of those remain basically unanswered questions. The uh, presence of so many Syrians, and uh, it's estimated that with the Afghans, Pakistanis, and, 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 and Syrians and others, there may be upwards of 6 million refugees in Turkey. That means we have almost um, 6% of our population now, which is not Turkish, Turkish citizens or Turkish nationality. That is a, that's quite a demographic challenge, I would say, and I'm not sure that we're prepared to actually manage it. The record is by and large good. There are plenty of Syrians who came in with money, who opened businesses, who are working. But of course, tensions are now rising because Turkish economy is in dire strait. And that is always, you need a scapegoat and that scapegoat may very well be the Syrians. We already had skirmishes uh, in, in different parts, in different parts of the country. But this is not a sustainable situation. We'll have to really have well thought out programs to integrate because there are at least 550, maybe 600,000 children who were born in Turkey. They, they need education. They need to be integrated into the system in a, in, in, in a country where unemployment rate for the Turks themselves is upwards of 20%. So it's, it's going to be very complicated, which is why if I may turn to the framework of our conversation, if the Europeans think that this issue can be resolved as a band-aid measure, the refugee issue, they're absolutely wrong, not that they learn anything from their mistakes, but uh, as far as I'm concerned. But, but you, you, the Europeans and Turkey will really have to come sit down. Uh, there is not much trust between the current rulers of Turkey and the Europeans, undoubtedly, but they will have to sit down and really talk about this issue more than in a transactional, in a, in a transactional way. It is now evident that the new German government is far more realistic about the demographic prospects of Germany, which I think is also the demographic prospects of most of Europe, and they are willing to change their refugee or their migration policy. And I think it is estimated that Germany needs to have 400,000 migrants every year in order to actually sustain itself demographically. That is a reality that the Europeans, because of maybe populist policy, whatever, for whatever reason, have been trying to escape from. It is an inescapable reality. So in all of those, Turkey, both in terms of European security and in terms of European security writ large, including the migration and refugee issues, Turkey and the European Union have a lot of things that they need to talk about, a lot of problems that are common. And I hope that soon rather than late, 
they will be able to do so. Well, I'm very glad that, that you mentioned that because I, I'm following Italy as well. And in various opinion polls, the whole migration and refugee issue is very low on on their priority list of, of, of Italians. And to, to the question why, it, it's very simple. It's exactly as you mentioned, Italian businesses, small, medium size, bigger, need labor. Mm-hmm. And they are pushing their government to say, look, we won't have anyone to work in our businesses and factories if we don't open the borders. So you are uh, spot on, and I completely agree with you when you say uh, we all need to need to sit down, uh, obviously Germany, and to address this issue. This is unfortunately something that's under the shadow of daily election politics in all of these yeah. countries and is being wished away. It will come back with a vengeance if we don't address this. So, Soli, as we come towards the end of the discussion, there's the inevitable question about the future of Turkey. Turkey is is trying to be, as you said yourself, a, a regional actor and, and player. Turkey is looking looking at elections. You yourself mentioned the dire economic situation, the, the inflation, the fall of the value of, of the lira. And then there are opposition candidates that, that are lining up. Where Where does Turkey go as we look at the election in uh, 2023 for the parliament and the president? It's interesting, but extraordinarily painful that a country of about 83 million people are now an open socioeconomic experiments, guinea pigs, in that our president, who says he studied economics, believes, contrary to the established orthodoxy of the of the discipline of economics, that it is the rate of interest that determines the rate of inflation rather than vice versa. Therefore, the Turkish lira in the past two months lost its value by 37%. That's huge. I mean, so it is, it is pretty huge. And, and they also think that by cheapening Turkish labor and by um, cheapening Turkish assets, they will be also be able to first export more and draw in foreign direct investment, both of which are, in my judgment, pipe dreams, because you have to have rule of law for foreign direct investment to come in. But secondly, uh, Turkish exports are also highly dependent on imports, (laughs) because we have deindustrialized before time. And then, of course, that is eating away at the support that the the, uh, ruling AKP in conjunction with its nationalist partner, MHP, had enjoyed for over 19 years now. Moreover, there is now a reaction to the extreme polarization along cultural lines in the country. And it's very interesting, by a recent poll, reliable pollster, 43% of Turks identify themselves as religious conservative, and 47 identify themselves as secular modernist. So maybe one of the interesting and maybe paradoxical uh, results of the 19-year-old AKP rule is that despite all the efforts to uh, to further Islamize or Sunnify the country, <laughs> the modernist vein of Turkey has actually grown as a reaction to mismanagement, to polarization, and really to a narrative of hate and enmity. So in that sense, one can be, if we can get over our current dire predicament, for the future, the uh, 200-year history of Ottoman and Turkish modernization will actually come back and with competence 
it may even lead the country to, to in, a, in a direction that it actually deserves. There are now finally a much more unified opposition that continues to stick together. And second, there are now new political actors, leaders, such as the mayors of Ankara and Istanbul in particular, who actually inspire the population and promise much better governance, much calmer waters in running the country. And to that, I think the Turks are being drawn. So change is possible. Change definitely is possible. By the way, if let's say in Hungary this spring, Orban loses, then the, then the climate in the world is going to, is going to change as well. And if Turkey manages in spite of European either indifference or antagonism, in spite of American indifference and, in fact, what's the right word, maybe, uh, nonchalance about, about Turkey. We have not been invited to the democracy summit, by the way. Uh, and it was a snide. It was a, a snide, deliberate snide, I think. And if Turkey manages to do this, it will be done through its own domestic dynamics. And if we manage that and turn the page, I think then the model uh, talk may come back and in a very positive, in my view, and more meaningful way. Soliozel, thank you so much for your incisive thoughts and broad views, not only broad brushed, but very concrete on uh, these important global issues. I look forward to continuing our conversations beyond the podcast. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Erster Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.